Lindsay Barra, and welcome to Food of the Gods, a podcast that explores how elite athletes eat and train to fuel performance. In these Gurus editions, we'll feature strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, recovery scientists, and other performance specialists who help athletes to be their best. This is part one of a special two-part episode with Dr. Mita Singh, a physician and psychiatrist who specializes in the science of sleep. Dr. Singh works with numerous NFL, MLB, NHL, NBA, Olympic, and college sports teams, providing evidence-based guidance to help them optimize sleep to maximize performance. However, Dr. Singh's insight is also valuable for weekend warriors, average Joes, and anyone who just wants a better night of sleep. So how are you? Where are you? I'm in Detroit, Michigan. That's where I live. And your practice is also in Detroit? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So I I guess we should start off for everyone. I read about you, but not everyone has. So can you just give a little bit about your background and how you got interested in studying sleep, especially with athletes? So I am a sleep specialist and a psychiatrist. I did my training in uh, psychiatry at Mayo Clinic, then finished fellowship in sleep medicine at the Henry Ford Sleep Disorder Center. And then up to a few months ago, I've always had a clinical practice at the Henry Ford Sleep Disorder Center. And I got started in sports really by happenstance. So I was listening on the radio and there was somebody talking about, it was a sleep expert talking to a local, <laughs> yes, a local the NFL team. And I knew the team physician who worked at the Henry Ford Health System. And so I called him and I said, that's nonsense. That's not whatever that person was telling you. And he said, well, come and give us a talk. Tell us about sleep. And that's how I got started. So I got started in the NFL. Lindsay, and as you know, the sports world is really small. So when people, wherever you work, once you work there, people move, they go to different teams. And so I started, I worked for the NFL. Then I got to work with the local major league baseball team. And then, you know, when people move to a different team, they'd ask me to come work there. And so I worked with the NBA, the NHL, the NFL, the a few international soccer teams, a little bit with the WTA, a few golfers, swimmers. <laughs> um, thinking a little you did the Olympic uh, women's Olympic soccer team this I time did. around, right? Yes, I did. I did. Yeah. And I think the Washington Nationals gave you a World Series ring. We did, yes. I you do. have that on the shelf behind you there? I, I don't have it here. I have it in my desk. You want to see? Uh, no, 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 that's okay. okay. <laughs> Were you an athlete yourself ever? Well, so I ran track and field. I'm not a natural athlete. I'm not naturally athletic. I do play tennis. I, in fact, I play tennis six days a week. Good for you. So I like playing tennis. I have to tell you that I learned a lot about American sports after I started in sports here. Because, you know, sleep I know really well. But for me, football is soccer before I got to know what football is. So, you know, I sort of learned more from about football from people who work in the NFL and, you know, learned more about baseball when I started working with them on B. Where did you grow up? Mostly in India, a little bit in England. And, and yeah. So were your favorites, what were your favorite sports to watch growing up? I liked tennis, badminton, table tennis, as well as cricket. So I actually covered tennis for 
13 years at ESPN magazine. I do like tennis as well, but I had never seen table tennis in person until I covered the Beijing Olympics. Uh And all I have to say is, holy moly. Yes. crazy. It is totally crazy. So a lot of respect to those, to those folks. Right. I mean, reaction time, reaction time and being on your feet is everything. Mm -hmm. And that's just it. I mean, I think that when you start working with sports, two things, number one is that you really have to be on top of your game, especially if you're working with people at that level, right? If you're at the Olympics or if you're, you really have to be. And the second thing is you have to be able to perform in the competition, the same way that you're practicing. Mm -hmm. And I think that ability, when you're able to do exactly how you were at your practice without all those crowds and people looking at you, you can maintain that. That is what makes a very good athlete. And that is a function of a well-rested brain. There are so many things that are functions of well-rested brain that I want you to go into. So, but first I do have one other question about your regular practice. So you said you maintain a practice at the Henry Ford clinic. No, I, so I I don't, you had, you did. I did. Yeah. Right. Right. So when this, I mean, this is keeping me so busy that I, you know, I can't do that. So I do have a niche practice in which I take care of athletic people, um, athletic athletes, and if they have a medical disorder. So a medical practice in which I take care of anybody who has a sleep disorder. And typically people who come to me are either student athletes or professional athletes, coaches, referees, stakeholders in the athletic world. I also have a consulting practice in which I do some sleep coaching with C-suite executives, a few entertainers, and especially when it comes to travel and how to fit sleep into their schedule. Yeah. So that's the other part of my practice. I was going to ask you if it's different working with athletes on their sleep than it is working with normal people on their sleep. And so there are two differences, I would say. Well, are the two differences that, differences that come to mind immediately. Number one is that athletes by their profession and because of their schedules and practices and the travel they have to do, Being an athlete itself is sometimes detrimental to their sleep. Mm -hmm. That sometimes is applicable to normal people, people who travel or who are working two jobs, et cetera. The other thing I think is that, so oftentimes when athletes come to me, they may not come to me with a problem with their sleep. They just want to make sure that their sleep is okay. So because their goal is peak performance. Mm -hmm. So, So the reason why they're there to see me might be different. I think for the general public, general public come to a sleep doctor because they're having a sleep complaint. And I think that the trend even amongst sleep doctors is to talk about sleep health as being not just the absence of sleep disease, but just an overall field in which you're making sure that you get enough sleep just because it leads to a happier and more fulfilling existence. So we all talk about getting enough sleep and yes. there is some debate amongst doctors and scientists mm-hmm. and people, because I have a lot of friends who say, oh, I only need five hours. What is enough sleep? And just maybe just a brief overview of why quality and quantity of sleep is so important for mm-hmm. everyone. So for adults, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine says they need about seven to nine hours of sleep to function well. Definitely, if you are getting less than six hours of sleep, there are some detrimental effects associated with it. That's number one. Now, 
the amount of sleep people need changes according to age. So for example, babies need a lot of sleep, right? If you have young children between the age of nine and 10, they may need about 10 hours of sleep and teenagers need about nine hours of sleep. So that's one thing that the amount of sleep varies with age. That's number one. A second way to approach that question is to think about how you feel the next day. And that can give you an idea of whether you're getting enough sleep. So if you're able to function and you can tolerate being in quiet, boring, dull, sedentary situations, like listen to a podcast or, you know, sit down and listen to a lecture, etc., without falling asleep, that means that you're typically getting enough sleep. I have to tell you though, that one of the first things that happens to you that get less sleep is your judgment gets impaired. <laughs> so because your judgment is impaired, because so there's not that self-perception of how much sleep you need is the one thing that gets impaired immediately. And so when people say, well, you know, I can get that with wife four or five hours of sleep, many times they may not be aware that they're not getting enough sleep because this becomes their new normal. They may be still impaired, but they just don't know. It's like being drunk or, you know, after you've drunk, have three drinks, you're probably not a good judge to say whether you're fit to drive or not. Somebody no, else might be able to tell you. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. So we're also now learning so much about the quality of the sleep that uh-huh. you're getting over the course of the time that you are in bed. So can you give us a little overview about the different stages of sleep and why they're important and what happens to your body during them? Okay. Let's start out with what the definition of sleep is. So sleep is a normal behavior. It happens every 24 hours and during which your brain is disengaged from the environment as well as unresponsive to the environment, to the environment, right? And it's normal, which is why, and and you can be readily awake, aroused from sleep, which is how we differentiate it from coma, which is a disease. And you you kind of look the same, but sleep is a self-limiting thing. It's completely normal. Now, so sleep because you're disengaged from the environment, it forces both your brain and body to rest. And that's why it's restorative. But it's not a passive thing. So in fact, your brain waves are really active. So depending on all the neurochemicals that are being secreted in the brain, your brain waves look very different while you're sleeping. And that's why as sleep scientists, we divide your sleep into two main areas. So it's one is the REM or rapid eye movement or dream sleep. And then there's non-REM or non-REM sleep, right? So dream sleep is about 20 to 25% of your entire sleep time. And it's very important for memory and learning, as well as for adding emotional context to your memory. So, you know, for your mood, et cetera. And while in contrast, non-dream sleep is simply divided into N1, N2, N3, from going from light to deeper sleep. So N3 is deep sleep. And it's when your heart rate goes down, your blood pressure goes down, your muscles completely relax. It's when your growth hormone is mostly secreted during deep sleep. So it's it's deeply restorative. And during the night, the way you fall asleep is you go through different stages of sleep. So it's cyclical in nature. So you fall into sleep through light sleep, N1, N2, N3, dream sleep, and then your sleep lightens and you wake up. And then you do this. So that's approximately 90 minutes cycle. And you'd cycle to different stages of sleep all through the night. And in the beginning of the night, let's say, is when most of your deep sleep happens. Mm-hmm. 
And then most of your dream sleep happens in the second half of the night. You know, that's why when you wake up in the early morning, you remember your dreams because you're likely you woke up from your dream sleep. I had a dream this morning that I was in a shopping mall with Ichiro Suzuki from the, the baseball player. Very strange. Okay. <laughs> I so digress. Here's so here's the thing. I want to tell you another thing. Because you asked me about the quality of sleep. So quality of sleep is something that we're still trying to, uh, sleep scientists are still trying to describe. So typically we would say that if you fell asleep within 10 to 15 minutes of going to bed and slept for 85 to 90% of the time you were in bed, that would mean you had pretty good quality sleep. And, you know, that's for your audience to realize how to measure the quality of sleep. The other way to think about it would be, like, how do you feel the next day? Do you feel refreshed? Do you feel, can you get by during the day without having to grab coffee, etc.? So that would be another way to indicate whether you have good quality sleep. I was going to ask when you're consulting with professional athletes, how do you assess the quality of their sleep? Is it all just based on what they say or are you using one of the wearables? What's the, what's the best way to accurately assess the quality it, it of their all, sleep? It all depends on the individual player. Mm-hmm. Right. So when I'm consulting with them, typically I would start out by taking a, a extreme, a thorough sleep-wake history to figure out where, where they're at, understand what their schedule is, definitely understand what their when they're playing, like for baseball players, sometimes, you know, they're, they're always starting the night games or if they're a closing pitcher, they're going to be going to bed really late because mm-hmm. they still have to do those exercises. You know how it, how it goes. Mm-hmm. To see how I would monitor their sleep, it could go anywhere from like a handwritten sleep diary to one of the wearable devices. Some people who have issues with sleeping and say would be, Wearing a device might not be a good thing because it, it may trigger anxiety. May, they may get even more stressed out about it. So we've been talking right, you know, so far about how because of their schedules, they don't get enough time in bed. But many times there's a group of people and players who may have difficulty initiating and maintaining sleep despite the opportunity to do so. So if they yeah. already have problems with insomnia, which is different from not getting enough sleep, they may not be a good candidate for that, for a wearable device. I find the wearable sometimes I wear it, but I just try not to put too much stock in it because sometimes Mm -hmm. it'll tell me that I had like 10 minutes of deep sleep. And I'm like, wait, that's weird. I feel great. And other times it'll tell me that I had an hour and 15 minutes of deep sleep and I feel terrible. So I kind of have to be like, all right, that's weird. And just move on with my day, despite what the thing says. Well, and and that's a a very good observation, right? And I I want, let's talk a little bit about it because to be honest, pay no attention to the stages of sleep. Because I'm not sure how accurate that data is. Yeah. One, number two is, what are you going to do with that data? So supposing it tells you in the morning you had 10 minutes of deep sleep, can't do anything about it. So, no, but sometimes I will try to think back, like, was I on my computer too late? What time did I finish eating? But then it kind of stresses me out trying to figure it out too. Exactly. <laughs> but it's better to think about the time you spent in bed. Because you can't control what stage of sleep you're going to have at night, the thing you can control is making sure you get to bed on time, mm-hmm. making sure your bedroom is cold, dark, quiet, and that you allowed yourself enough time to sleep because all the sleep stages are a percentage of the total amount of sleep you get. As long as you do those things, the brain will take care of the stages of sleep. 
So you're talking about cold, dark room and getting to bed at the same time. I assume that the tips that you would give an athlete to get to sleep are the same that you would give normal people. What are those tips that you give everyone to try to get into a sleep routine? And, and to- Well, so before we do that, let's talk about one thing that differentiates you and I. So supposing you and I need the exact same amount of sleep. So supposing both you and I need eight hours of sleep every night to function very well. And supposing you and I are very good at making sure our bedrooms are cold and dark and quiet and we keep enough time for sleep. But what if you're a night owl and I'm a morning person? And that can differentiate us very much. So if I'm a night owl, no, if I'm a morning person, which I really truly am, and I like to go to bed at 9, 9.30 and wake up at 4, and you're a night owl and you go to bed at 12.30 or 1 o'clock in the morning and wake up at 9, just for this example, then if you try to go to bed at 9.30, which is my bedtime, well, you'd be awake for three hours. You'd be really frustrated. Mm-hmm. Right? It would make absolutely no sense for you to do that. Yeah. And if, I, if you ask me to stay up to your bedtime, I'm exhausted, falling asleep on the couch, watching TV, waiting for my bedtime. So the one thing that we didn't talk about and we should mention for your audience is something called sleep timing. And a good way for the audience to understand this is to know that all of us have a clock in our brain and it's a timekeeping clock. It's called a circadian clock, which is circa approximately 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And it does many, many things. And in fact, every cell in your body, every function has a circadian rhythm to it. But the clock in our brain, one of the things it also decides is your personal preference to be either active in the morning or active at night and what your biological bedtime would be. be. So for me, I am a morning person. I prefer to be active in the morning. And then, you know, my body starts to shut down and I'm ready to sleep by 9.30 at night. So what is your, what is your bedtime? Usually between 10.30 and 11 and get up between 6.30 and 7. So so you're, you know, you're not, I'm in the middle. In the middle, yes. <laughs> or, or actually, so because I wake up rather early, so I'm a little bit of an extreme morning type. And you're, you are still a morning person. So another way to think about it is that if you had something really important to do and you could pick and choose what time to do it, what time w- during the day would you do the work? Would you do it in the morning? Would you do it in the mid-afternoon? Would you do it in the... It depends the- if, it's a very phys- if it's a physical activity. I don't like to uh, exercise after I've eaten. So I do all my workouts fasted. So if it's a physical exercise, I want to get up and do it first thing in the morning. But okay. if it's a mental thing, I want to work out, eat, and then do it. Okay. But if you had a very important mental activity to do, would you do it between nine and 10.30 at night? No. Because you, you know, you're not going to be at your level best, right? No. Yeah. So something some, as simple as that. So now that we've established that you are a somewhat of a morning person, not an extreme morning person, but a morning person, If you suddenly started a job in which you had to, if you had to wake up every morning at four in the morning and you'd have to be at work at six o'clock, it would be difficult for you or, you know, 5.30 because, right? Because it wouldn't be in sync with your biological bedtime. Similarly, if, if if you had a job and you had to suddenly start doing the night shift, you couldn't get to bed till four in the morning, that would be difficult too. So- Trying to sleep according to your in alignment, your, your circadian clock is also a good thing. So I, my, then my immediate question is for athletes, like yeah. take you're a high school athlete and you play all your games right after school at three o'clock mm-hmm. and you go to college and most of your games are still in that 
range. But if you're a college football or basketball player and you're playing division one, you might have your games at nighttime. Yeah. Then you get to the big leagues and all of your baseball games, unless you play for the Cubs are at night and you may be a morning person, but now you have to work out at night. So how do you counsel those folks to adjust to the new schedule? There are two, three different points in this that we should address. The first point is that student athletes, they have two responsibilities, wear two hats. They have to be a student in academic work as well as play a sport. Mm-hmm. This sport always has to fit into their lives. And of course, in addition to that, they may have other college athletes sometimes have a job. Mm-hmm. And so the demands on their time are so much that sleep often gets compromised. Now, teenagers and young adults are wired to be night outs. Mm-hmm. And that's a big problem because school begins too early. <laughs> and so they don't get enough sleep. In fact, tomorrow I'm giving a talk to late school start time, that group, because they want to learn more about it, right? I mean, so there's that. That is a big problem. It's a problem that a lot of people are talking about because for some reason we get our teenagers who are night owls to wake up early. So it's like it would be, so a teenager being asked to get to school at 7.30 in the morning would be like if I asked you that you had to be at work every day at 5.30 in the morning, Mm -hmm. about two hours, or you know, if you're waking up at seven, an hour and a half before you're actually wake up time. So it makes no sense. That's number one. Number two is that question that you asked, you're absolutely right. So your chronotype or your preference to be a night owl or a morning person has profound implications on the way you perform the next day. And in fact, in fact, there are studies that look at this and they found that, so for example, one of the studies is in, it looks at peak performance. So, so if you look at a group in total and well, average bedtimes of going to bed at 11, waking up at seven, peak performance typically occurs between four and seven in the evening. That's a group effect. But if you're a night owl, peak performance happens later at night. If you're a morning person, peak performance happens earlier during the day. So for professional athletes, being able to shift their clock to adjust to this is really, really important, especially mm-hmm. if you're going to play a very important game. So that's number one. Number two is that means that if you're a morning person, you may, and you are playing major league baseball where most of the games are at night, that means that your evenings are busy. So you may not get to bed on time, but you don't sleep in because biologically you wake up early and you get less sleep. Yeah. If you're a night owl, then it's very difficult for you to wake up for that morning game, that day game when you have that day game. So, you know, again, that becomes a difficulty. So now coming back to your question, that clock that you have in your brain on a daily basis, it's a 24-hour clock. It keeps time. It's intrinsic, but on a daily basis, it is reset by daily exposure to light and darkness. And you can use strategically timed light as well as avoidance of light, as well as Uh, strategically timed diet, exercise, and sleep times to help shift people to shift their clock so that they can align them to their actual game times. So it can be done. It just takes a lot of discipline. The good news is if they're committed to it, they can have that discipline. 
I ask people this all the time when it comes to specifically baseball, and you've now worked with a few baseball teams. Mm-hmm. I have never understood. And my grandfather was a professional baseball player, and I asked him for years and years, and he was just like, it's just the way it is. And I'm not sure that that's the best answer. Why in spring training do you prepare for 180 days of night games with six weeks of being at the ballpark at 6 a.m.? Mm-hmm. It well, makes no sense. No so sense. You- you have yes. your guys now, they adjust to that six-week schedule where they're yes. all at the ballpark between six and seven in the morning. And then yes. abruptly, they yes. flip it on their head 12 hours. It's yes. crazy to me. Yes, it is. and it is. And it makes absolutely no sense to do that. Now, oftentimes, <laughs> oftentimes it's because they're day games and they're trying to, day, to get more people to come watch those games when they're down at spring training. But yeah, it's completely messed up. It, <laughs> it is. It's messed up. You know, sometimes when things are done for a long, long time that way, people forget the reasons why they're done. And the biggest impediment to any sort of progress is to say, well, only because it's done this way. We've done this for so long, we can't change. Right. So that it makes no sense. You're absolutely right. And because a lot of times the families are there during, you know, so they get time to get home and relax too. And, but then, yeah, it's like the answer to that is very simple. The answer is that. Not all shift workers have shift work sleep disorder. Mm-hmm. The best shift worker is somebody who's living that sleep, that shift, whether they're working or not, which is what, so if you're a night or an afternoon shift worker, which is what all baseball players are, mm-hmm. that's what you should do whenever you're playing. And not sleep in and on the days when you have off days, you just have to keep that schedule. Yes. Correct. Well, well so in major league baseball, they should be allowed to, they should be sleeping in normally. Well, they, I, I mean, I mean, not changing the sleep schedule on yeah, the off yeah. day. But it's not the off days, it's the day games that mess them up. Mm. Okay. Because what happens, you know, if you have a night game and then you have a day game the next day. Yeah. You have to sort of wake up because you have to be there at 10 in the morning. Because you have to do all those exercises before you can start playing at one in the afternoon. This concludes part one of our conversation with Dr. Singh. Be sure to check out part two. You can follow Dr. Singh on Twitter at at MD and on Instagram at at AthleteSleepMD or you can visit her website, MeetAsingMD.com. Until next time, for more information on Food of the Gods or to download other episodes, visit us at FoodOfTheGodsPodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at at FoodOfTheGodsPod or email us at FoodOfTheGodsPodcast at gmail.com. Food of the Gods is a Digitant Podcast production.